It is an honour to be here and uh, to preach God's Word uh, this morning, and uh, thank you for the invitation to do that. And uh, I encourage you to open again the Bibles at page 1093, and uh, as you follow through this passage from John's Gospel, chapter 21, and let's pray. Lord our God, your word is light and life, and we pray that you will shine the light of your word in our hearts, so that we may live, so that we may live in Christ and for Christ, in whose name we pray, Amen. Now I have only ever been fishing in my life twice, so I'm no expert on fishing, let me say. However, uh, my track record fishing uh, is almost impeccable. Uh, that is, uh, the first time I went fishing, uh, within about three minutes, I caught a trout that we ate for dinner that night. And then the second time I went fishing, I caught, in fact, a Mekong catfish that was about this big, literally, I mean, I'm not exaggerating, 30 kilograms. That's my track record in fishing. Let me say, both times were at fish farms. (laughs) I've yet to work out why anybody would go fishing outside a fish farm, to be honest. I mean, what's the point? Uh, The fish are all there in the fish farm. They're all actually wanting to be caught, uh, basically. The first time I was actually only about nine years old catching the trout. Uh, That was in a fish farm in Italy, in Milan. And then two years ago, uh, a place in Bangkok. The strange thing there was you paid to catch the fish and then throw them back. Seemed a little bit strange to me, but anyway, uh, that's Thailand for you. The, uh, so I'm not very experienced in fishing. However, I do eat breakfast. So there's one qualification that enables me to preach on this passage today. I may not be interested in fishing, really. I think it's a waste of time. But even at a fish farm, for that matter. Uh, but I do eat breakfast, so there is some sort of claim of experience here as we read about this fish breakfast that Jesus has uh, with his disciples. Uh, and it seems to be quite a good breakfast, actually. Uh, fish and bread. Uh, there's no mention of chilli sauce. There's no mention of nazi lamak. So, you know, I can imagine the Malay Bible, the Al-Qatar probably has contextualised this. I guess, maybe not. Here is an amazing fishing story uh, with an amazing breakfast at the end. But of course, it's not really just about fishing fish and it's not just really about breakfast. Uh, We're told that this happens uh, after this, some time after. We're not told what day, uh, but some stage after the resurrection day or even after the week after the resurrection day, if you understand what I mean. So we, we need to allow several days uh, for the disciples to have gone from Jerusalem back up to Galilee, uh, a few days' walk, a couple of hours' drive these days, but uh, the transport wasn't quite so good then. And, uh, and so some stage, two, three, four weeks maybe, after the resurrection, the disciples are back in Galilee. Uh, for many of the disciples, maybe the majority certainly, uh, Galilee was their home area in the north of uh, Israel under a slightly different jurisdiction, not under Pilate in the south, uh, but rather up north uh, under one of the sons still of Herod the Great, called uh, Herod Antipas, the Herod who was involved 
in a sense, in the crucifixion of Jesus. So they've gone back to Galilee. We're not told in John's Gospel why they're there, but in other Gospels we're told that the, they were told by the angel that uh, uh, tell the disciples to go back to Galilee and there Jesus would meet them. Now, though that is not in John, uh, that is probably uh, the logic behind them no longer staying in Jerusalem. Uh, after all, Jerusalem was a hostile city for them. Uh, it's not their home city. They were associated, of course, with Jesus who'd been crucified. We know, of course, that uh, Peter had denied Jesus on the night before uh, the crucifixion. And even though they had seen the risen Lord Jesus, there is still obviously some overwhelming uh, puzzlement, confusion, uh, bewilderment about what is going on. And so for them, certainly, going to Galilee would make sense, uh, even without the command uh, from an angel, in effect, to go there, uh, to be back uh, in, in uh, Galilee. The key to this passage, we're told by the narrator, uh, at the beginning and the end. It's brackets, this section, in effect. After this, Jesus revealed himself again. And in verse 14, we get the same idea at the end of this passage, This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to his disciples. So this is a revelation of Jesus. That's fundamentally what this passage is about. We're told it at the beginning, we're reminded it at the end, before it then goes on to speak of other things in the second half of the chapter. So the basic point of this account is that this is a story of the revelation, the appearing, the showing of the risen Lord Jesus to his disciples. And in John's record, it's the third time. Now, it may not be the third time in total, uh, but it may be, in fact, uh, for the disciples, that is. And certainly within John's Gospel, uh, that is the case. There's the Easter day, there's the Thomas uh, incident, and now this third revelation of Jesus. So in one sense, John, the writer, is telling us this is a real event, a real appearance of a real risen Jesus Christ. It's not just once, not even just twice, but here now is a third time. That is, as John writes this, there is a a purpose, in a sense, of evidence for faith and conviction. Now, we know that from the end of the previous chapter. Jesus did many more signs than this, but these are all written so that you may believe. Now, that same purpose continues into chapter 21, surely. And even though some say this looks like an appendix, it looks as though John's Gospel ends in chapter 20, uh, in fact, I think not. John is alerting us to what he's been writing and now adding to that a third appearance of Jesus so that you may believe so that you may have faith, so that you may follow. Notice where the evidence is anchored. See, sometimes we think, and occasionally in the words of our hymns, the empty tomb, the empty tomb, we know that Jesus is alive. But an empty tomb by itself can mean all sorts of different things. And there are lots of tombs that are empty in the world, but they don't all, in fact none of them, apart from one, points to resurrection. The significant thing is that Jesus appears. That's actually even more important than the tomb being empty. And John here is saying this is the third time. So if you have any doubts about this, if you want to dismiss the first one and say that it's a sort of overwhelming grief 
and they're envisaging and they're having a dream or a ghost or something like that, well, here's a second time and here's a third time. That is, it is underscoring the, the reality of this, the evidence of it. In the Old Testament, it's interesting that for significant cases of law, especially when people are put to death, uh, the, you need two or three witnesses. Now, you may not need two or three for a minor case, but certainly a major case. Now, I, I'm not sure that John has that in mind here, but the same sense of here is yet another account to make it even clearer, more significant, more convincing that Jesus really is alive. Not just an empty tomb. And we'll see some aspects about him being alive here that also I think are significant. So there are those over the centuries uh, and today who still dismiss the resurrection as though it was a ghost, uh, a projection of grief by disciples and hallucination, etc. I've met people who, whose dearly loved one has died and they say, you know, I'm, I'm sure he's in the house with me. Now, I, I don't want to trouble them too much, but I think that's not really the case. But here, it's, it, this is real. And it's not just like a spirit or a sense of presence. This is the real, risen Jesus. This account, in fact, smacks of, uh, sorry, to use a pun here, smacks. can hardly say it over there, can I? This, this account, cathedrals, no, it doesn't work there, but it works here. Um, this uh, account uh, smacks of an eyewitness. There are little details that are unnecessary for the narrative. There are little details that indicate, actually, from what perspective it is being written, uh, as we'll see as we go through this account. So, there ought to be uh, little doubt uh, from a reader of John's Gospel that the, risen, the resurrection of Jesus was an absolutely true and real historical event. And that Jesus who rose, rose is not a mere ghost or a spirit. It's not just a, a sense of confusion and wishful thinking or grief hallucination. He is real. And yet, what we find here, as in other resurrection appearances, is the combination of recognition and confusion. It is Jesus, and yet, there's an element of puzzlement, as we'll see. The setting, we're told, is the Sea of Tiberias. It's only John that calls it that. But actually, he, he does so very accurately, because Tiberius had been, or was the emperor, uh, and they had built a city named after him, beginning in 17 AD, called Tiberius, on the side of the Sea of Galilee. And even though the Sea of Galilee or Gennesaret were the names that were frequently used, Sea of Tiberius became its official name. Now, I'm only saying that not, not to bore you with historical details, but just to remind us that we are reading something here from somebody who knows the detail and is accurate and truthful about it. The disciples have come back here, as I said, after being in Jerusalem for the uh, Passover feast and then, of course, for uh, what turns out to be the crucifixion and then the resurrection day and the week following. And Peter, as always, is the leader and it is Peter who suggests in verse 2, uh, here he's called Simon Peter, the combination of his names, old and new, uh, he suggests that they go fishing. Some of the disciples are named, seven of them, 
I don't know that there's a significance in the number seven here, as some people think. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and two others who are unnamed. Where the others are, we're not told. If they're not there, it doesn't necessarily mean a bad thing about them, that they've abandoned them. Maybe they don't actually come from Galilee. Uh, Maybe they're just sleeping in. Maybe they're not the fishermen. Uh, These are the fishermen, perhaps. Peter says, I'm going to go fishing. And they said, we'll come with you. And they get out in the boat and they go fishing at night, through the night, and catch nothing, verse 3 tells us. It's interesting, as I've read a bit about this, to see the range of responses to Peter and the disciples going fishing. So there are so many who think this is reflecting their their apostasy and walking away from Jesus. That is, they come under scathing rebuke from some writers on this passage for going fishing. That is, because in chapter 20, as the Father sent me, so I send you. Why aren't they out on their world mission? Why aren't they at the airport trying to fly across to the ends of the earth to bring the gospel of the resurrection of Jesus? Instead, they're going fishing. So there are a number of writers who think that this is actually a particularly bad thing, that they're abandoning Jesus, that they've abandoned being commissioned by him in John chapter 20 to be sent by him. I personally think that's a very harsh response. After Pentecost, which comes a few weeks later, and the official giving of God's Spirit, we never see the disciples go fishing. That really does seem to be the launch. And Jesus in John's Gospel seems to anticipate Pentecost by saying, as the Father sent me, I send you, and he breathes his Spirit on them, for example, earlier on. John John seems to be anticipating what will come, as though Jesus is preparing them for the future. But the actual sending, the actual mission, is not yet begun. I personally think I see no reason to condemn their fishing at all. After all, many of them were fishermen. They've still got to eat. They don't have probably ancient hawker stalls like you're used to, to just go and and where do they get their money from? If they're fishermen, well, why not go fishing? It's not a rejection of Jesus. It's not saying, well, now this is all over and done with. That was an interesting three-year interlude. Let's go back to our old ways of work. That's not what's going on here at all. In fact, when they do see Jesus, they're eager to see him. So they're not abandoning him at all. They're not rejecting him or turning away from him. They're not disobeying a commission, I think. So I I see little reason, no reason really, to condemn them here. It's simply just, well, what are we going to do? Why don't we go fishing tonight? We haven't been fishing for a while, you know. Let's go and catch some fish. And, And some of them are fishermen. They're expert fishermen. And the Sea of Tiberias is a wonderful place. It's sort of like a great big fish farm, really though I've never actually tried fishing there, although I've eaten the fish that have come out of there a few times. They go fishing at night, the best time to catch fish, and we're told later on that they're about 100 metres from the shore, which apparently, uh, I've never known all this sort of detail, but apparently that is about the right place, the best place to go fishing in the Sea of Galilee. It's a bit hard to do it at 100 metres from shore in the fish farms that I've been to because there's not even 100 metres wide, but anyway... They caught nothing. Now, it may just have been a bad night, but the Sea of Galilee is abundant in fish. 
So it's a little bit strange that they catch nothing. After all, at least some of them, this is their job. They were fishermen. They did it every day. They know about catching fish. Nighttime, 100 metres from the shore, best places. Why don't they catch nothing? Why do they catch nothing? Well, I could have told them you should have gone to Milan, you see. You would have caught fish there, although it's not open at night, would be my guess. At the end of this long, fruitless night of fishing, on the beach is a man. And the man calls out. Now, we're told, of course, who the man is, but at first they don't know. It's just a man walking. Uh, we're told that it's just as day was breaking. So it's in that murky light, just when it's beginning to get light. They can see there's a man, but a hundred metres away, they don't know who it is. And the man said to them, children, do you have any fish? Now, that's the translation here, but it's not actually quite captures the, the tone of the question. Firstly, the tone of the question is negative. You haven't got any fish, have you? And it's not quite children. Uh, in our language, I mean, for those from England, you'd probably say lads is really the, the sense here. Guys, mates, uh, that sort of language. It's not, it's not like children. It's not a, a patronising term or that sort of little endearment term. It's sort of like, hey, lads, you haven't got any fish, have you? But actually, the word for fish is actually the word that's more often used for fish pieces. Now, it would be a bit strange to catch pieces of fish, but maybe it's sort of implying you haven't even got any fish pieces, have you? I mean, you've got nothing. Now, he's, he's actually he's phrasing it as a question where the answer is clearly, no, we haven't. That is, it's one of those questions where you know the answer. They're the questions you never see on exams. If you're a student, you'd love to have this sort of question because you know what the answer is from the question itself. Now, most fishermen, apparently, I've not quite experienced this in my vast experience of fishing, but most fishermen, apparently, are often the recipients of lots of gratuitous advice. They're standing on a rock or they're, they're on a boat and people call out, have you caught anything? I suppose I've even done that when I've walked occasionally on a beach or a pier or something. What have you caught? Always hoping that they don't give me a technical answer that I don't understand. What I need to know is, is it fish? And occasionally, apparently, people will say, well, go and fish over there. I caught fish over there last week, sort of thing. Lots of advice is thrown around, apparently, in the community of fishermen that I'm so ignorant of. So here's a man saying, you haven't caught anything, have you? No, we haven't, they call out to him. Cast the net on the right side of the boat. Now, there are some who think that Jesus must have spotted the sort of shimmering shadows of fish on that side of their boat. That's a bit rubbish, really, surely. hundred metres away in the murky just dawn, just as it's getting light. Unlikely. Is it just gratuitous advice? What's surprising, in a way, is that they actually do what the voice says. I'm not sure that I would. I think my pride would be too damaged. But anyway... They follow the advice of this man. And so we read in uh, the end of verse 6, So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. They follow the advice. The way it's written suggests that the result is very quick. That is, they don't 
cast their nets onto the other side of the boat and one, two, three hours later the nets are full. It's almost as if within, within split seconds, within minutes. Now, that's maybe reading a touch too much into it, but the way it's written, this is very quick. After all, they do have breakfast at the end of this still. They don't have lunch or dinner. And so, very quickly, the nets are full. Now, the, the type of fishing, apparently, is cast fishing. Again, I'm thoroughly ignorant about this. But you would have two boats, and I, it seems you cast a net between the two and sort of drag it along somehow. Very quickly, this net is absolutely full, and though it doesn't break. They can't even haul it in. When this happens, the disciple whom Jesus loved does not mean that Jesus only loved one, but one who had a particularly favoured position with Jesus. Without a doubt in my mind, and most would agree, this is John the writer. That he's in one sense playing down, uh, he doesn't want to name himself, uh, but on the other hand, he wants also at times to show that he is in, on the inside group, as he was with Peter and James. And as is typical, for example, on Easter morning, when they came to the tomb, the tombstone was rolled away, we're told, at the early parts of chapter 20. Peter gets there first, but then the other disciple, the one who Jesus loved, when he reached the tomb, uh, sorry, uh, he reached the tomb first, he saw and believed. Peter goes into the tomb first. This one stays outside, but he is the first to believe, the first to recognise. And that's what happens here. The same disciple is the first to recognise that the man on the beach is the Lord. It is the Lord, the Master, is what he says in verse 7. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he did, as is typical of Peter, the one who's quick to act, sometimes quick to speak, he jumps into the water and swims ashore so that he's the first there. We're told that he, was, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work uh, and threw himself into the sea. That's probably, uh, some translations have he was naked, but probably is, is the idea, not that he's fully naked, but that he is, he's probably just wrapped a, a garment around him, sort of like you, you know, a loincloth in a way, and now he throws on his outer garment. Now, we don't do that. We would actually take off clothes to go swimming. Uh, he puts them on to go swimming. Uh, that's probably a mark of their culture and respect and those sorts of things as well. But here is John, who's first to believe, Peter, who is first to jump into the water. And again, the sense of reality of this story is here. Because Peter jumps in the water, swims ashore, and what are we next told? The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. That is... The story doesn't say Peter jumped into the water, swam ashore and started talking to Jesus and shook his hand and said, what's for breakfast? It's as though the story is told from the perspective, Peter goes and where are we? We're in a sense with the other disciples in the boat, if you understand what I mean. That is the perspective of the story is told from one of the other disciples in the boat. Now we assume that it's John, the disciple whom Jesus loves, who's writing this. But the way it's written suggests this is real. And the fact that it stops to say that Peter was stripped for work and he puts on a garment and swims. Again, they're details that technically are not necessary for the story, 
but they show us the reality, the truth. This is an eyewitness account. We ought to have little doubt about the truthfulness of this account. And that fits with what, why John is telling us. This was the third time that Jesus revealed himself. John is wanting the reader to know this is true, that Jesus is really risen. We can follow and trust in this risen Lord Jesus Christ, as in fact John himself uh, did. Well, it seems, of course, that John's eyes are open because he recognises this is miraculous. This is not just a coincidence. This is not just a fisherman who's fluked it and said, throw your nets onto the right side of the boat. Somehow John's eyes have been opened to recognise this is the Lord who said this. Now, of course, it's not the first time that things like that have happened for them. So probably in John's mind are some connections of earlier occasions of fishing with Jesus, for example. And that's perhaps what's opened his eyes and mind to what's going on. In fact, the again, little details to show the truthfulness of this. The word for boat in that verse, um, the disciples came in the boat, is a different word from the one that was used earlier in verse 3. One is a boat and one is a little boat. And again, that would be often the way when you go fishing, you go cast fishing, you need two boats. The disciples would be spread between two boats and one could well be smaller. So again, it's just in the little language that's used, we think, wow, this is really reflecting a true story. It's not just made up later on. Breakfast is ready and what we notice is that Jesus has already made a charcoal fire and there is already fish on it and bread. Jesus doesn't need their fish. It's interesting, isn't it, how Jesus, when he called out to them, he didn't call out, you haven't caught anything, have you? No, we haven't caught anything. Well, it doesn't matter because I bought some fish. It's here on the barbecue. Come in and have breakfast. He doesn't say that. He actually deliberately organises a miracle to open their eyes. One says they didn't need that, if it's about eating breakfast, that is. So they come in. Jesus has already got fish and bread, but he invites them, bring your fish and let's, let's cook. Let's have a really good breakfast, a big breakfast or whatever you call it. Jesus feeds them. They don't feed him. And then we read in verse 11 that Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish. So they're struggling to get all these fish in. There are seven of them it seems. Now it's six because Peter jumped in and swam. And Peter comes back. And we're not quite sure how far in they've got. But he joins them as though the seventh person is actually going to help. Now maybe it does. Maybe that's all they need. But this, the point of Simon Peter going to join them and help them is underscoring the fact that this is a lot of fish. It is a heavy load. Let me tell you, when I caught this 30 kilogram Mekong catfish, the proof is on my Facebook page, the, just in case you doubt, you know, it's, it, it, it's not like this. Um, I ate for days in my shoulders, my arms and my hands. I'm not very strong. The next day when I was preaching, it was almost impossible to lift up the Bible. My hands were so, so sore. Peter must be a strong guy. Probably all the disciples are strong guys. They're not wimps. So this is a very heavy load. 153 fish, in fact, we're told. Now, I studied mathematics at university originally 
and I love mathematical puzzles, although I'm pretty much out of touch with them now. And, uh, but here is one of the best ones. Let me tell you the secret about why this is 153 fish. Not 154, not 153 in a handful of sardines, 153 large fish. But before I tell you the secret, let me tell you some other solutions to this problem. One writer centuries ago said there are 153 varieties of fish in the Sea of Galilee. The trouble was that his source says there are 157 types of fish and so we wonder, did he deliberately quote wrongly or did he forget? He was wrong. Another one, a hundred represents Gentiles, non-Jews. Fifty represent Jews or at least the remnant of the Jews and three is the Trinity. Ah, that's pretty smart, isn't it? Now, I like, you see, what, what happens for me then is when I think of things like that, I think, why is it that? Why isn't it 99 for the Gentiles and 51 for the Jews? Why does it have to be 150 and 3? You see, you can make up numbers for all sorts of things. You know, 70 nations in the book of Genesis. There were 72 or 70 sent out, for example. Now we've got 13 left. What are we going to do with 13? Well, there's three in the Trinity. That leaves 10, 10 commandments. You see, there are dozens and dozens of possibilities. Now, in saying that, um, somebody says, and counted, apparently, there are 153 individuals in the four Gospels put together whom Jesus has connection with. Now, I haven't bothered, I must confess, sorry, I really could not be bothered checking that statistic. But there are 70 disciples, 11 apostles, 10 lepers, Matthew, uh, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, the centurion, giant. I'm not convinced that it would be 153, actually. I would have thought it would be more. But of course, why limit it to the individuals? Jesus speaks to vast crowds. So that theory seems a little bit bizarre to me, even if it is a coincidence that the number 153 may be right. Now, you may also know that uh, in some thinking, uh, and you get this in children's code puzzle books as well, you know, A equals 1, B equals 2, C equals 3. So the name Passover, 153. Fishnet, 153. I'm not sure about stockings, but anyway. Magdalene, 153. But having said all that, what's the point? What's it saying, if that is in fact the case? You see, there's no control over these ideas. You could make anything into 153. 150 Psalms and three chapters of Joel, for example. And on and on and on and on it could go. I mean, why Psalms and Joel? Well, why not? There are some intriguing uh, mathematical suggestions. 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4 plus 5 plus 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 and 17 equals... 153. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? But why stop at 17? Why not say 171 fish and you count 1, 2, 3, 4 up to 18? Ah, but you see, 17 is very important because there are seven gifts of the Spirit and there are ten commandments. Or, as somebody else said, there is 
the Trinity, Ten Commandments, and there are four sides to the New Jerusalem. Why not four Gospels? It's bizarre. There's no control over all of those things. And here's the other one I do like. One, five, three. One cubed is one. Five cubed is 125. That is five times five times five. And three cubed is 27. One plus 125 plus 27 equals 153. Now, that's a rare thing. That is actually quite rare. There is another mathematical suggestion that makes 153 unique. This is quite a puzzle. You take any number, you cube the individual, I think it must be a three-digit number, you cube the numbers in it, you get an answer, you cube the numbers in that, and you'll keep going till you get to 153, and you can't go any further. I didn't know that Jesus or John did mathematics at university. (laughs) But the point at the end of all of that is, so what? Is that really, is there some hidden code there? Now, there are people who write books about hidden codes in the Bible. That's not how we read the Bible. You see, John's made it very clear here that the point of this is that this this happened. It's true. Jesus revealed himself. So here is the secret to 153. If you went fishing and in one short period of time you caught 153 large fish, I think you'd count them and you'd remember because I doubt that it would happen that often. It's a bit like a person who plays golf, which also seems a waste of time to me. But I would guess that people who played golf remember what their best score was. I played golf once and I scored 225. (laughs) That was over 18 holes, not 72. And then I discovered the idea was to get the lowest number, not the highest number. I thought it was like cricket. So I failed. In cricket, 225 would be very good. The point is, this is how many fish they caught. They may well have been counted them on the beach to divide them up amongst themselves. Let's all take however many each. Interestingly, it's not divisible by seven or even eight with Jesus included. That seems to me the logic of it. The Bible's not full of these puzzles. There is no control over those puzzles. God's word to us is a clear word, a revealing word. What's going on here is that Jesus is revealing himself. This is a true event. And just like we've seen other details like Peter putting on an outer robe and jumping into the water first, like the disciples struggling without Peter to get all the fish in, 100 metres from the shore. All these little details, they're showing us this is a real event. There's not a code there for Peter putting on clothes or why the right-hand side, not the left. Is that sort of anti-left-handed people or something? No, of course not. There's no sort of hiddenness about all of that. Simply what happened. 153 is it. And what we're meant to believe here is basically Jesus is alive. It's astonishing. It's so astonishing that the details of this were in John's mind very sharply, very clearly. We're not sure when he wrote it. People say it was written very, very late. I doubt that. I suspect it was perhaps even the first Gospels we written. Certainly the earliest part of the New Testament that is in existence today is from John's Gospel dated 130 AD, for some reason in a library in Manchester in England, which seems a bit peculiar. 
Jesus is alive. The disciples, they know it's Jesus, but they're still confused. They don't dare ask him, who are you? They know it's Jesus, but yet we know you're not quite Jesus. That is, you're a risen Jesus. He's real, he's physical, you can touch him, he eats, he speaks, he hears. It's not a ghost, it's not an apparition. And yet, earlier he walked through a door, now he's still doing miracles. There's something still, he's not, he's not simply just like you and me, physical. There's more to it than that. And that's the puzzlement for them, the bewilderment for them at this time. Now it is true that John, when he writes his Gospel, does use images and metaphors to make some subtle connections. And I suspect here there is something of that, not at the level of codes and numbers and those sorts of secrets. And though it's not in John's Gospel, there are many echoes here of an earlier time where Jesus is with the disciples fishing where they end up with so many fish that the nets break. Here they don't. So when this happens again, I suspect that for John and the other disciples, part of the recognition of John that this is Jesus is, you know, three years ago, something like this happened then. We caught lots of fish, our nets were breaking. And what Jesus said then in Luke 5, I will make you fishers of men. Now, though it's not in John, but in Luke, that's a, a bit of a distance in a way, I'm sure that as John writes this, the basic point is this is real, he revealed himself. But there is a subtle hint because of that connection. I will make you fishers of men. That, I think, is what John is hinting at here, in a sort of subtle way, perhaps. Resurrection witnesses are to be fishers of men. Blessed are those who do not see and yet believe, John had written in the previous chapter. And so what in a sense is the connection is that those who have seen and believed will be fishers of men to pass on the message to people who haven't seen but that they may believe. That seems to be a thrust of this gospel of course. It's an evangelistic document. John is writing so that people believe. And here is part of the connection that those who do believe are to be fishers of men. Belief is not for keeping private. Belief is for sharing. It's interesting how they do nothing. They catch nothing earlier. Jesus had said to them back in chapter 15, without me you can do nothing. And as soon as Jesus intervenes and tells them what to do, they catch many things. Again, people suggest maybe is there that sort of hint here that without Jesus you can do nothing, but following Jesus we are to be fishers of men and we should expect a vast haul, not 153 different languages or something coded like that, but the vastness of it and the nets don't break. That is, there will never be too many people to be one for followers of Jesus Christ. The nets won't break. So the vast catch doesn't direct us, I think, to a magical number. It directs us to the fact that so many people ultimately will come to Jesus. And it's only after the resurrection that this theme really gets launched. Before the resurrection, not so. So because he rose, because we believe, even though we did not see, because we are the recipients of the same 
gospel message, the same resurrection message, we too, I think, are implied in here to be fishers of men. And not just to those who are comfortably close, not just to those, in one sense, who it's legal to encourage, but to any and every, outside our comfort zones, outside our safety zones. You see, this is a message not just for Chinese or Caucasian or Indian ethnically or Orang Asli or Iban or uh, others. In fact, there's nobody for whom this is not a message. Yes, the vast catch of 153 was an astonishing miracle, but an even greater miracle is the millions today around the world in every country who believe in Jesus. And an even greater miracle still will be the countless multitude that will gather around the heavenly throne and sing the praises of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. But until that day, we fish. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And though we do not see him visually and physically, we know that that does not matter now, but that we believe without seeing. So we thank you for the record of your faithful servant John and the other writers of uh, testifying to the resurrection. And as we believe, we pray that we may be fishers of men also, so that more and more people will also believe, place their trust and follow the same risen Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.